come now for our time in the Word. And this morning, as we're going through the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to put together two short passages that both teach on the same idea. First from Mark chapter 9, and then um, Mark 10. So first, Mark 9, 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Then flipping over to Mark 10, starting in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word for his church today. May we... May we hear what he's saying to us. So, uh, my opening question this, this morning, I put on Facebook yesterday, but it's simply this. What was the most difficult thing you had to teach your children to do? And so Cheryl and I talked about this, and we came up with three different answers for each of our kids. And I won't tell you which or which, but one was for tying shoes, one was for teaching to swim, and one was learning to ride a bike. And so each of those was, was a challenge. I, I got all kinds of different answers on Facebook. Some of you gave similar answers. I saw um, teaching how to drive a car. Someone said riding a bike. Uh, a few people said potty training. Yep. Um, others of you were more, more deeper than me. You know, I'm a simple guy. You know, you talked about how to treat people and commun- some, something of how you communicate or treat people with respect. Uh, many, many, many of you focus on how to clean up or put things away or close the doors. Um, some had other questions about how to navigate life. So I have a feeling we all face sim- similar difficulties as parents on, on things that we teach our kids. But I, I say that just to set up this question. What was the most difficult thing for Jesus to teach his disciples? And we see in this latter half of Mark, Jesus starts to emphasize a truth, an idea. And he hits it in both of these passages and also elsewhere. And it's one that his disciples just don't seem to get their minds around. They can't seem to get it. And we'll see what I mean in a second. But the teaching is this. In order to follow Jesus, we must become a humble servant to others. 
That's the idea that Jesus begins to press upon his disciples, the 12 apostles. And he, he begins focusing on that, especially as he nears going to the cross himself and talks about his, his, what he will do in going to the cross. He wants to convey this idea. In 1 John 2, there's a very short verse that I think is, is key. It says, anyone who claims to live in him, in Christ, must walk as Jesus did. Now, in the ESV version, it says anyone who claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And that's what it means. But I, I looked it up in the, the Greek text, and it actually does say walk. And so I think actually what I have on the screen is the NIV version, a different Bible version. And so... And that's, that makes sense, though, right? If you claim to follow Jesus, you must follow him. You must walk in the same manner in which he did. And as you think about the life of Jesus and how did he walk, how did he live, Jesus came as a humble servant to give his life away. Think about what he did, how he responded to people. He cared for them. He was constantly helping people, serving, blessing them, receiving those who no one else would receive. Um, and so if we are to follow Jesus, we must become a humble servant to others in the way that he was. And Jesus had gathered his disciples, the 12 apostles, specifically that they might be with him and learn from him how to do that. His way of teaching was simple. Come be with me. Come watch me. Learn from me how to do it. And so the disciples literally walked where Jesus walked for three years that he might teach them this idea. And the one lesson that they just couldn't seem to get in their heads was this idea of being humble in their service to others. And so first we have Mark 9, and they're walking to a, a certain town, which they often did, and on the road, as the disciples are, are following Jesus to this next town, they get in an argument. They start arguing over which of them is the greatest of the disciples. I can totally see that. I mean, you can imagine each one making their case, right? You know, Peter would say, well, I was the first one to figure out he was the Messiah, you know, and Matthew might, might say, well, I was the one taking notes, and, and Matthew's gospel has the most detail as far as Jesus' teaching, so maybe he was taking notes, and Judas might say, well, I, I'm the one he trusted with the, the money bag, so he, he, I must be the greatest, or John would say, well, I got to follow him up the mountain. You know, each would make their case about why they were the greatest, most important of the disciples, the first. Uh, I remember Little League Baseball. And I was on the same team for like seven, eight years. And I'll tell you what, the coaches never said anything about who was the best player. But we all had a ranking, right? We knew. Well, first of all, we knew Jeff Turner was the best of us. Like, he was the only one in third grade that could actually hit the ball over the fence. So, you know, that was clear. But ever, after that, you know, we all fought over, well, was it Kleinfelder or Carnai and, you know, and, and I, I put my name in there. I, I had a pretty good glove. I wasn't very fast. But you know what? You, you know, so we all had that pecking order. We all argued over that. 
I totally see the disciples acting that same way. And Jesus overhears their argument. Well, maybe he knew because he's the son of God and he knew everything. Or maybe he just heard them and they were, they were talking about it. So when they get to the house, he, he, he says, he asked them, what were you talking about along the road? <laughs> you got to love the way Jesus did that. Things like, you know, it, it says they were all silent because none of them wanted to fess up to their argument, right? And so Jesus then sits them down. And he, he pulls them together, and he begins to, to teach this idea. And he says, if anyone would be first, you know, that's what you're arguing over. Who's first? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. In his kingdom, in the kingdom of God, it flips the way the world works. In this world, you, you push your way to the front. You call shotgun before anyone else does, right? But in his kingdom, the greatest is the one who puts the others first, is the one who lets the others be of greater importance than them. And, and then Jesus uses a visual illustration to, to highlight this. He calls a child to himself and sits him on his lap or knee or whatever. Um, and he says, whoever welcomes a little child like this welcomes me. And if you welcome me, you welcome the one who sent me, our Father in heaven. Because Jesus was, was saying, in a sense, taking that same status as the child. This is different than what we talked about last week, though. When Jesus said, if you would enter the kingdom of God, you must enter like a little child. It's similar in that both emphasize the humility. You, you don't enter God's kingdom all proudly strutting in. You come in as a child trusting his father. That was last week. This week, it's talking about status. In our day, we're kind of sentimental about kids, right? We, in the ancient world, not so much. You know, children and servants, were, were, they didn't get much thought to. They were of lower status. They got the, the junk jobs, right? And the, important, the adults, the, the master of the house was the important one. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be one of mine, you need to welcome people of lower status. You, don't need to, you can't think you're too important to spend time with children or others. And if you welcome them, you welcome me. So it's a visual illustration. And I'm, I'm sure they understood that from then on, and they got the point, at least until the next chapter in Mark 10, when James and John come to Jesus with their request. And they, they come and ask, Jesus, when you enter into your glory, we would like to sit on your right and on your left. Give us the chance to sit on your right and your left in your glory when you come into your kingdom. And what they were picturing is that they would get a position of power and status as Jesus initiated the kingdom of God as he entered Jerusalem. And they thought they would be lifted up with him, that Jesus would use his spiritual power and popularity to, to bring it right then. And oh, they had it so wrong. That was, when Jesus would be lifted up, it would be in a completely different way. And 
they could not see what was coming. Even though Jesus had told them. In fact, right before our passages, if you look at the context for both 9 and 10, right before these instructions that happened, Jesus had told them, when I get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be rejected, arrested, rejected, uh, and crucified, and suffer many things. So even though he told them the crucifixion was coming, they couldn't get their heads around it. And so they come saying, Jesus, we want to be exalted with you. The rest of the disciples were, were fuming, right? They, it says they were indignant. Why? Because they didn't think of it first, right? Because, you know, these guys called shotgun before they had a chance to do it. And so now everyone's mad at each other. Now they're all in this competitive mode. And that's our context for uh, the passage in Mark 10. When again, Jesus calls people together. And he begins by saying, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So that's thinking the, the Gentiles, the other nations, that's like the Greeks and the Romans, and they, they would certainly picture a Roman governor uh, or an official who was very arrogant and dismissive and had no time for people other than the important ones who were always off at, off at their parties. You know, the, those who are rulers of the Gentiles, they, they exalt in their position of high status. And then he goes on to say, and they're, um, they're great ones, exercise authority over them. The, the great ones is megaloi, mega, meaning great. The, they're great ones. Um, they get to tell others what to do. They get to say, do it, and people have, can't argue. They have, they have nothing to do. They have the status. That's how it works in the ancient world. It's a good thing, of course, nowadays we're much more enlightened and our government officials and leaders are never arrogant or boastful. They never see, seek to exalt themselves and look down on us little people. Thankfully, that's not like that anymore, right? It's how the world works. That's what Jesus is saying. This is, this is how the world works. And then he says, not so with you. It shall not be so among you. The Lord has decreed that his people, his church, will, not, will operate by different rules than that of the world. In his kingdom, it's not going to be like it is in the kingdoms of this, this time. So if you want to be great, if you want to be one of the megaloi in God's sight, the great ones in God's sight, you must become a servant to others. If you want to be first in God's assessment of your life, you must become the slave of all. Jesus in this uses two words in, in Greek, diakonos and doulos. And di they both mean to serve or a servant. Uh, diakonos is where we get the word for our deacons. Maybe you talk about the diaconate. And it simply means a servant, like one who does the work of service. So in Acts 6, when they, they need people who will, who will distribute the bread, the fruit, the food to the widows, 
they call seven men to be deacons, diakonos, right? So your waiter or waitress at a restaurant is your diakonos. It's servant in that sense. But what I was thinking about is that it's possible to be a servant and still be arrogant, right? You know, to be a servant and say, fear not, little people. I am here as, you know, to give you what you need. So it's, Jesus had not just one word, diaconus, he also added doulos, which can be translated as slave. I'd like better the translation of bondservant. Because I think with the word slave, there's a lot of baggage with that. And, you know, a slave might be prone. You put yourself as prone to abuse. That's not where he's going with that. But a bondservant is you owe your service to another of higher status. That, that's the idea of it. So inherent to the word doulos is willingly putting yourself of lower status. Both means serve in that sense. So that's what it means to follow in the way of Jesus, is you become a humble servant to others. Jesus, he goes on to say, the Son of Man did not come to be served. Jesus, the one who was infinitely high status, did not come into this world so that people would serve him. He came taking the lowest spot, came in humility, and served person after person that he encountered. And then ultimately, he gave his life as a ransom. He gave his life to pay the penalty of sin on our behalf by being shamefully treated and humiliated on the cross as a criminal. He went as low as you could possibly go, knowing and trusting that the Father would lift him up. To follow Jesus means to walk as he did. To follow Jesus means to take the role of a humble servant and put others first. This is echoed in other passages in the scriptures, and it gives different angles at it. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So when we call Jesus Lord, we do as he says. He's our Lord, but it means we put ourselves in service to others. Did you know when you said yes to Jesus, that's what that meant? <laughs> you know, we, we don't always often in the, the gospel presentation mention, oh yeah, you say yes to Jesus, it means you get to be a servant to others. But that's part of the package. That's what it means to call Jesus Lord. Um, the other, Second Peter, or First Peter, verse 5. So Peter, one of the 12 who heard Jesus say this, maybe eventually did get it. I love how he describes, he says, clothe yourselves, he's writing to believers, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. There's that image, right? This humility doesn't come easy. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it fits. It's awkward. And so we got to learn to clothe ourselves. We, in a sense, we take on that nature of Jesus. We clothe ourselves with Christ and his humility until it gets to become more comfortable upon us. We learn humility as we, we follow him and, and do what he did. Clothe yourselves in humility 
For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We humble ourselves, meaning we take the lowest spot, not because that's where we want to end up, but we do it in faith. That if we do this, at the right time, our God and Father will lift us up. He, we put him in charge. Who would you rather be in charge of of giving honor to your name? Would you rather be you or God? Who could better honor you in this world? Yourself or the one who made you? In faith we trust that he will honor us in the right time. One last passage we're thinking about is Colossians 3.23. And it says, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So this is saying it's not just professional ministers and pastors and all that who are servants of God. All who follow Jesus are called to serve God. And so so whatever you do, whatever your day job is, whatever you invest your time in, um, however you're, you're Whatever you're doing, it's the Lord Christ you are serving. What if you approached your your day job with that mindset? Your work or your school or your your free time um, with the idea of how can I best serve others? How can I not just go to work with the idea of I'm going to make a bunch of money and I'm going to move up the chain? What if you went saying, what can I do to, to be a blessing to my coworkers even my boss, how can I make their life better? That's the call that we're, we're called to approach our vocation. And for, for young people, as you're setting your path in life, don't just look for a career that will exalt you, what you can gain. Look where you can put what God has given you and bless other people. If God has given you a, a gift and a, and a gifting, a skill, how can you use that in the service of others? That's what you're called to do as a Christ follower. Can I suggest that ultimately we will discover that the only good thing that will come from our life that will last is what we did in service to others. All our efforts to do something important to achieve something great. All of our time we're spent trying to, to, to build something that will last will all come to nothing if in it we're trying to exalt ourself. What we, but what we do to help others, love others, lift them up, encourage them, that we can carry with us into the next age. That will last in our work. And what came to mind, we, we talked a little bit about in the office, is um, two men. Well, the one we we're talking about is Ravi Zacharias. Two men who had climbed the ladder to the top of Christian ministry. And I, for both of these, Bill Hybels, who founded Willow Creek Church, and Ravi Zacharias, who had, who had a, an apologetics gospel ministry, both of them are ones I had read their books, had been encouraged by, and, and now both are, have been embroiled in 
controversies about how they treated younger women in their employ especially and I would say for both of them now their their reputations have been destroyed for Ravi Zacharias he built this this huge outreach gospel ministry I don't know if it'll survive the revelations that have come out about him and I'm not going to go into any of that or cast judgment on on these men you can read about what you want um, Christianity Today will talk about both of them but but I don't know if their ministry will survive. It, it almost certainly will have to change their name because um, he has his, his name built within it. Um, for Bill Hybels, he, he, he built this great church. And the, the church will survive, but his reputation is, is kaput. And I just wonder if they reached a level where instead of serving others, maybe they got up so high they started to see that others were there to serve them instead. I was thinking, how do you get to that point? And the passage that came to mind, and this is not in your notes or anything, it's one I was thinking about just the last day. It's from 1 Corinthians 3, and it starts in verse 12. And Paul is talking about how do you build your ministry? How do you do the work of Christian ministry? He says, if anyone builds on the foundation of their ministry with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will be, become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. In other words, what we invest our life in and how we do our service to God, if we're doing it to exalt ourselves... It's, it's wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to burn when it's under examination. The only thing that will last of how we live our life that will matter is, is what we do in humble service to others. He ends with, I think this is somewhat a hopeful note of grace. It says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only is through the fire. So even if, you know, we screw it up and, uh, and all is lost, our salvation is by his grace and goodness anyways. And so I find encouragement in that. But we are called as followers of Jesus to humbly serve um, other people. This is, this is key to what Jesus talked about. And so I think in different ways in the scriptures, in, in the gospels, we see Jesus pointing to that, trying to point his disciples. I will just hit a few real quick. So one time he was at a dinner party. And, and Jesus says, rather than um, seek the seat of honor, he says, take the lowest seat. And if you're, you know, the guy who hosted the party thinks, hey, he, he might raise you up to a higher seat if he thinks you deserve it. But don't take the seat of honor for yourself. Take the lowest seat. Um, we talked about how, um, you know, Jesus said to receive children and those of low status. One time Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Jesus himself associated with all kinds of people, whatever their status. And he says, when you receive someone, you're receiving me. Like that. Um, he talked about 
how when, if you're forced to go one mile, which is something a Roman soldier had the legal right to compel, compel a bystander to carry their pack for one mile, it gave the soldier a break on the, the, the march. So you could be compelled to carry that one mile. Jesus said, don't just go one mile. Serve that, that soldier and carry their pack a second mile. Serve even those you consider your enemies. Jesus tried to teach his disciples not to be defensive, to always be defending themselves against criticism and insults. He says, you know, bless those who curse you. Don't reply insult for insult. Don't, um, one of the hardest things is to not be defensive when we're insulted or criticized. But that's part of being a humble servant. Um, Jesus talked about how you you don't want to draw attention to your good deeds, but seek to do them in secret. Seek to do them in secret or anonymously so that no one's... And and he he even gave a great picture of that. He says, um, do your good deeds or or your your giving so quietly that your, your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. So even as you drop the money in at the right hand, your left hand says, I don't know know what's going on. So do it that secretly. What a great image. Um, And then he, right right before the end, the last thing really Jesus did to try to teach his disciples on the, the night before the cross, as part of the Lord's Supper, Jesus himself took the towel and basin and he took the lowest spot of the servant and washed the feet of his disciples and then said, what you have seen me do, do for each other. Jesus put a lot of effort into teaching his disciples this, this one message. Um, but it's, it's a challenge. And I, I, I think even for such a great pastor as me, one who's so humble that I'm, I'm just, you know, the, the greatest one. It's hard for me to teach you all, you know. So, so how does God teach us to be humble? And <laughs> I was pondering that and remembered how I got started in ministry um, as a professional in ministry. I, I decided to, to go into ministry my, halfway through my senior year in college. I was heading towards a different field and um, had actually applied to grad school and was making plans for that when I had a change of, of thinking um, through the Lord. I, I was volunteering for Young Life and leading a Young Life club as a senior in college and I just heard God say, I, I want to do that for the rest of my life, that kind of work. And so I made that decision um, probably in like February or so and just redirected all my plans. Well, as I was finishing out that last year as a volunteer, one of the big things we do in Young Life is we want to take kids to camp. And so I'd been taught to pray boldly and to pray and, and believe so I, I decide, I, I'm praying, God, I want us to take 30 kids to camp. Um, you know, it, it, it's a great finish to the ministry. And actually, I was going to continue at that, that same school that I was working at. And so it would help me going into the next year. And so I prayed, Lord, I want to take 30. And I told the area director, in, who was in charge of holding our spots, that we're going to take 30 kids to camp. 
And so when I announced it at club and started doing all the things to try to convince kids, um, and they all kept saying, no, I can't go. I can't. Oh, we have, we're on vacation. Or, oh, that's the sports camp week that week. And I had all these reasons. And, and, but I said, nope, I've prayed for it. God, you know, this is gonna, how I'm going to start. And so I kept telling the air director, no, we're taking 30 kids to camp. He says, okay, I, I believe you. And so I went and called every kid who, who ever came. You know, we had, it's probably an unrealistic goal, goal anyways, because we only had about 25 or 30 coming. So um, the, the idea is that every single kid would come to camp and start calling them and kept getting reason after reason. But I believed and kept insisting, nope, we're going to take 30 kids to camp. And I think in my heart, I, I, I I really did want to serve, and I wanted to see teenagers meet Jesus and find faith in him. So I know at least part of my motives were were good. But I also wanted to be able to walk in the door knowing I took a big group, right? And to be honored as someone who's like, there's that other side. And God, who is good, chose to humble me by allowing me to fail. And only three kids went to camp that summer. Um, the, the area director sat me down and said, we lost money because I, I, we had way too many spots and that, that, that has an impact. And, um, and I didn't go to camp because he said, we're just going to put your three with the other group and you can stay home and do something else. And that's at the same time I turned down grad schools and was committing myself to, to serving Jesus. That was, I, I think God did that on purpose. And he's done it quite a few times since. Um, if we seek to be exalted, God is more than able to humble us. But if instead we would take the lowest spot, if we would say, as Mother Mary did, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me as you have said, then God has room in his perfect timing to lift us up at the right time. Closing questions. When have you seen humble servant leadership in action? Where have you seen that in the church? Because it does happen. When have you seen that? And what would it mean for you? What might God say to you today about how to humble thyself in the sight of the Lord? What would that look like in your life? Let me pray. Father, I just want to affirm that I want to be your servant. And whatever you lead me to do, Lord, I will do. Lord, may we as your people learn what it's so hard for you to teach us that when we put ourselves last then we <laughs> that if we put ourselves first Lord we're, we're doing wrong may we take the lowest spot may we lift up others instead of lifting up ourselves and right now Lord we just want to close by honoring you and, and honoring your son in this time of worship we pray in his name Amen.